What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. I do not pretend to understand how artificial intelligence works. I just know that it is everywhere now. If you have a phone that will suggest the next word in your text to you, that's it. You're using it. If you have an email program like mine does, it suggests perhaps the rest of the sentence to you, that's it. There's artificial intelligence at work. And while it's too complicated for most of us, to understand it is in our lives. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about neural implants and artificial intelligence, Pastor Trevor Sutton. He's pastor of St. Luke Lutheran Church in Haslip, Michigan, co-author of the book Redeeming Technology, A Christian Approach to Healthy Digital Habits, and a recent column for Christianity Today titled Neural Implants, Should We Become One with AI? Pastor Sutton, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Why do Christians in general need to think about technology? Scripture invites us to think about technology. Technology is kind of all over Scripture. Genesis 1.28, God gives the command to subdue creation, have dominion over it. And really from there, Scripture is just littered with topics and conversations about technology. We hear God commissioning the creation of certain technologies, commissioning Noah to build the ark. Bezalel is endowed with the spirit to be a craftsman, to build items for the tabernacle. So we hear God commissioning technology. Uh, We also hear scriptural warnings about how sin can leverage technology. There's the Tower of Babel, the bronze serpent that we hear about in in Numbers. It ends up later being worshipped wrongly in uh, 2 Kings 18. So there's all kinds of examples of human making, either being commissioned by God or human making becoming idolized in in an unhealthy way, in an ungodly way. We also see in scripture, the early church leveraging technology for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Paul talks about parchments and membrana, different media technology of his day that, that he was using to proclaim the gospel. So I think Christians should care about technology, talk about technology, because scripture does. Technology's all over scripture. And in some way, technology touches just about every aspect of the Christian faith. We can think of technology through the the lens of law and gospel. We can approach it through a a first article lens, a second article lens, a third article lens. But in some way, technology and the Christian faith are quite conversant. And I think that begins in scripture. Tell us about Elon Musk's company, Neuralink. So Neuralink is a neurotechnology company. You can probably hear the word neuro in all that. So obviously the brain and pairing the brain with technology. Uh, Neuralink is in and around the uh, Silicon Valley. It's a company that's about seven years old. And what they've been working on for quite some time now is uh, implantable devices for the brain. Devices that are especially aimed at what's an emerging field known as brain-computer interface. 
just as that sounds, that would be devices that allow the brain to connect or interface directly with a computer. The goal of Neuralink immediately, at least in the short term, would be to create therapeutics and devices that can treat serious diseases, ailments, things like Parkinson's or spinal cord injuries you know, that have resulted in paralysis. But the company also has articulated a larger goal would be human enhancement. So augmenting memory, augmenting information, processing, processing speed of the brain, so forth, through these implantable devices. And I know a lot of folks will hear this and think it sounds like sci-fi and something way far off on the horizon, but not exactly. They started with animal testing some time back. Now they've moved as of May 2023 to human clinical trials. So it's something that's rapidly approaching coming to market. And then one other thing I think is important for people to realize is Neuralink's not the only company pursuing this sort of technology. There's a company called Onward in the, the Netherlands. They too are, are doing something very similar, implantable devices, actually having already done something like that in a man with Parkinson's disease. So Neuralink is one of several companies endeavoring toward this. What makes neural implants different from other technology that we interact with and interface with all the time, like something as simple as eyeglasses or hearing aids? In one sense, we can think about neural implants as being not all that different from those things you've mentioned, um, eyeglasses, hearing aids. Um, there's, there's a whole range of wearable devices that I'm sure many listeners use and have, and people have been doing that for quite a long time. So for instance, you know, we're familiar with uh, pacemakers or cochlear implants. And cochlear implants, they insert an electrode into part of the skull. So there's something similar in this. And then, of course, we're familiar with hearing aids and eyeglasses, those sorts of wearable devices on our ears and our eyes. And then there's this whole range of what I would call like health optimization devices or optimizing devices. So your things like a, a Fitbit, an Apple Watch, smart rings, things that are, are not trying to overcome a malady or ailment or, or deficiency, but things that are trying to optimize health and well-being, things like that. Then also Apple has their uh, Vision Pro kind of augmented sight, maybe a, a response to Google's uh, failed uh, Google Glass, things like that. So we can see all kinds of wearable devices that are already out there. I think the key thing is the difference with neural implants is this is a wearable device for the brain and it has the power to transform the mind and cognition, namely connecting the brain to AI and machine learning. And I think anybody would recognize that is radically different from your Fitbit or your eyeglasses or something like that. So this new technology is not aimed at correcting vision or restoring hearing. It's aimed at connecting your brain to terabytes of data, connecting it to supercomputer processing. So in one way, I think it's helpful to see this as part of a, a continuity and a long line of wearable devices, but without a doubt, this is a radical departure, something that we've never encountered before in this sort of technology. What are some recent trends within artificial intelligence? AI, artificial intelligence, one of those things that we've just heard about all over the place in the news as of late. I, th I think a few things that are noteworthy as trends that are happening with AI, things that were 
seen happening. One would be the, the speed of breakthroughs and the applications that those breakthroughs are allowing for. That's increasing. So I think it's important for listeners to recognize, you know, AI has been around for a very long time, somewhere in the 1950s, but it also went through a long season of, of dormancy and challenges, what some people call the, the AI winter, where there was um, decreases in funding and interest and, and correspondingly decreases in breakthroughs and technologies coming in that field. Well, that winter has, has given way to a spring in a really profound way. And so lately, there's a lot of funding and correspondingly a lot of breakthroughs in AI. So I think that the speed of the breakthroughs, the speed of new things coming at us has recently changed. Connected to that, there's a lot of consumer applications that are coming to market and coming to people's homes and people's lives. You know, for a long time, AI was largely a concern or a field of computer scientists, maybe big tech companies, and, and more like the behind the scenes machinery. But now AI is being brought to market for everyday consumer applications and it's touching people every day in their workplace. So healthcare workers, for example, nurses, they are working alongside AI as they care for patients. And then one last trend that I've been noticing is, again, flowing out of these previous ones would be fear. Fear seems to be mounting in relation to AI, and perhaps rightly so, but there's a, a center for AI safety in San Francisco Several months ago, they produced a statement, kind of a one-sentence statement that basically said, mitigating the risks of AI and the, the risk of extinction, they said, is on the same level as societal scale risks like pandemics and, and nuclear war. So neural implants, I think, are part of that fear and that response to the fear that in some way, if AI is coming at us faster than we expect, if it's coming to the market and uh, there's fear in the midst of all of that, Neural implants are kind of a response to that of if we can't beat AI, well, let's join it and implant ourselves with the connection to it. Pastor Trevor Sutton is our guest. He's co-author of the book, Redeeming Technology. We're talking about neural implants and artificial intelligence. What are some of the assumptions of those who see a bright future for the physical interface with technology? We'll talk about that after the break. The Lutheran Witness Magazine interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective the Divine Service is the theme for the January edition. The Battle for the Bible and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is the theme for next month. You can receive an annual digital and print subscription for less than $25. Learn more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Lutheran Witness Magazine. We'll be right back. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse -verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. 
Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to eighth grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. CUChicago.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about neural implants and artificial intelligence with Pastor Trevor Sutton. After our conversation with him, we will wrap up today's show discussing forgiveness and abuse with Dr. Mark Rockenbach, co-author of our book of the month, Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. Pastor Sutton, what are some of the assumptions of those who see a really bright future for the physical human interface with technology? One of the assumptions when I see people painting just an infinitely bright future with this sort of technology, the assumption behind that. I think would be a very limited view of, of human sin. People function kind of with the idea that humans with enough time and knowledge, with enough failed attempts and redoing those attempts, that eventually they can perfect the world and create good things, nearly perfect things. And so there's a, an assumed high view of, of human making, human capacity, a low view, you might say, of, of human depravity and sinfulness. and also, I think behind all of that, I see a, a rejection, you might say, of, of the view that, that humans are subject to supra-subjective laws or authorities. There's this assumption that, that humans are autonomous, free agents in the universe, sort of free to, to do whatever they are capable of doing. And I would suggest some big caution in that whole assumption, that whole view. And I think one of the big cautions from that or for that comes simply just in the history of human technology. And we can see that that sin finds its way into the history of human technology. For example, the internet. The internet was created as a communications network, created with an eye toward national defense. But today, the vast majority of internet traffic, somewhere about 80% of internet traffic, it's dedicated to pornography. And so we can see the, the human capacity to create things and then bring them into a mess of sin. And humans have a long history of creating these kinds of technologies, really with maybe altruistic motives, but then finding a way to leverage the things we create for sinful purposes. And I suspect that neural implants and this sort of technology would follow that same pattern. How are both an optimistic and a pessimistic view about blending humanity and technology, how are they both essentially religious viewpoints? Within the field of philosophy of technology, you can see different thinkers and, and really just the way the whole field kind of falls. There's a divide between a techno-optimism and techno-pessimism. 
But there's a uh, Christian philosophy of technology scholar from the Netherlands. His name is Egbert Sherman. And he has a, a pretty interesting insight on this. But Sherman argues that techno-optimism or techno-pessimism, either way, both are essentially religious. They're essentially religious because they have to do with ultimate hopes or ultimate fears. So for example, extreme techno-pessimism, you could see that in in a thinker like um, Martin Heidegger and his philosophy of technology, that extreme techno-pessimism, it places ultimate trust in human freedom And then it ultimately fears technology that might inhibit that human freedom. On the other side, you have uh, extreme techno-optimism, which I think would be manifest by someone kind of like Elon Musk, placing ultimate trust in uh, freedom and human freedom, but also ultimate trust in autonomy that we can succeed through technology. So I think at the end of the day, what, what Sherman's arguing, I think it's kind of a helpful way to approach it, would be if your ultimate fear or if your ultimate trust is in technology, you're entering the realm of religion, what we call soteriology, uh, where is your salvation? Uh, And so in some way, we see how these conversations that are really not ostensibly religious, in fact, they are imbued with a, a really deep religious assumption, and they enter pretty quickly into the topic of theology. Why do we need to ask the question, do we want this? Such a simple question, but at the same time, I think it's an incredibly powerful question. And by do we want this, I think there's an implicit why do we want this? And again, going to scripture, I think we can see how that question plays out in different situations. So I can't help but think of Genesis and Eve and Eve with the serpent. She wanted the fruit. Why? because it would make one wise or it would put one in the place of God. Similarly, I, I can think of um, Israel wanting to, to have a king like all the other nations. And why? Well, everyone else has one. This is what our neighbors are doing. And both of those, I think, are examples of we want this, but why do we want this? And so when it comes to the, the question of neural implants, the do we want this question, I think it's worthwhile in, in several ways. Uh, Do we want this to ameliorate a health issue like paralysis or degenerative diseases? Do we want this so that we can go beyond the limits of our human brain so that we can be wise, maybe in the place of God? And I think those are two very different reasons, two very different exigencies for this technology. But Neuralink has said, well, they're after both of those, <laughs> ameliorating the, the health ailments, but also um, furthering the, capa- the capacities and the capabilities of, of the human mind and being wise, perhaps in the place of God. How do we count the cost of our interaction with technology? So counting the cost, it's a big question or a big undertaking, but I would say you, know, you can count the cost of this technology in several different ways. So you could count the cost in terms of what does it cost to bring this product to market? So for example, not just the financial cost, certainly there's that, but what if many people have to die in the clinical trials for this technology to be brought to market? Certainly there's a human cost in that. Or you can count the cost in terms of 
how much are you personally willing to pay for this or how much are you able to pay for this? So for example, what, what if this technology comes to market, but it is um, extremely cost prohibitive to everybody except for the super wealthy? Suddenly, then you have a kind of a hyper caste system, something like, like what Aldous Huxley describes in A Brave New World. You have a scenario where uh, there are people with super brain capacities because they've been able to afford this implant and then uh, everyone else who cannot. Or you could count the cost in terms of what does it do to our conception of, of being human? And that's a little harder to quantify, but I think that's probably the higher stakes question. This technology, the, the cost of it would be it's a clear move toward what's known as transhumanism or trying to go beyond the human body to merge our bodies with, with machines and technology. But I think the idea of counting the cost in all this What's hard about that is I don't think you can count the cost accurately on the front end. If you've ever done a, a home renovation project, you, you know, the cost is always surpassing your initial expectations, but you don't find that out till after the fact, after the project's done. And then in budgeting, we talk about you know cost contingencies or construction contingencies. And those are usually done by a, you know, a factor of 5% or 10%. I think we should think of neural implants as having a cost, clear and obvious on the front end, but also a, a cost contingency, a, a hidden societal uh, or humanity cost that that maybe we're not capable of anticipating on the front end that we would only know in retrospect. How do we estimate the benefits? In some way, similar to my previous comments, estimating the benefits, it can be a bit opaque especially on the front end before you enter into something like this. And without a doubt, I think we shouldn't lose in this conversation the fact that a technology like this would have a benefit, especially for those with the ailments such as paralysis or, or Parkinson's disease, something like that. And then, you know, I think we can admit going beyond those examples, there would also be the benefit of a, a more general group of users for this technology. For instance, there would be a benefit to not having to consult a map or, or look at a GPS, but instead your brain could just directly connect to Google Maps and tell you turn by turn where to go. I think in some way, sure, that is beneficial. There's a benefit. But I think in any sort of um, analysis of that, you have to kind of understand that all technologies, what they do is they make some things easier, but they also simultaneously make other things harder. So they come with benefits, but those benefits always have some sort of drawback. And again, this is inherent in, in technology throughout. And so neural implants, you know, they are garnering millions and billions of research dollars and capital investment because people see the potential for benefits. The question would be, do the costs outweigh the benefits? And how can we determine that on the front end, especially before uh, this this becomes so widespread that there's there's no going back. What's the difference then between using artificial intelligence to serve our neighbors and using it to somehow improve humanity or change humanity? So the language of serving and improving is sort of interesting. Serving clearly a, a biblical call to to serve. 
but not necessarily a biblical call to go beyond, especially to go beyond the constraints and the um, the ways that God has already created a good creation. I think in some way we can maybe come at this question thinking about how Luther came at some of the questions of his day when it came to technology and tools. Uh, Luther's got a, a wonderful quote about tools where he says, you know, look at your tools, your needle, your thimble, your beer barrel, your goods, your scales, all those. And he says, you know, look at them and nothing that you handle, any of those tools, all of them, they say to you, friend, use me in your relations with your neighbor, just as you'd want your neighbor to use his property in his relations with you. And so I think in some way, this call to to use our tools and our technology in service, I especially find it helpful when it's service to the neighbor, because service to the neighbor is a little easier to ascertain than service to humanity or improving humanity or society. I think it's pretty hard to figure out what is good for all of humanity or society, but your neighbor, the people to whom God's called you to to interact with on a daily basis within your vocations, it's easier to to love and serve them because you know them and you interact with them and and life with them is, is much closer. And so I think when we think of these big things like AI, these massive societal changing things, sometimes it's easier to, to bring it down to the level of the neighbor rather than humanity as a whole. And, and that brings us to a, a, a bit of a clearer place as to how these tools might be applied or what we'd want them to look like in the world around us. So in thinking about any technology or tool, you know, how does this tool help me or hurt me in serving my child, my wife, my church? In some way, paraphrasing Dostoevsky, he, he says, you know, loving one's neighbors in the abstract or at a distance, like that's one thing, but loving one's neighbors in close quarters, that's a whole different deal. And so this idea of what does it look like for AI or what does it look like for, for the emerging technologies we interact with? What does it look like for them to be used in service to a neighbor, a concrete person we can name, as opposed to this more nebulous thing of, of improving humanity? How is technology, in many ways, a first commandment, have no other gods before me issue? I can't help but think of the, the first commandment without hearing Luther's explanation to the first commandment. And what he says, he basically describes it as loving, fearing, or trusting in God above all else. Like That's what it means to keep the first commandment, but it's also what it means to have a, a false God, this idea of fear, love, and trust. And so I think in some way, technology can be put into conversation with the first commandment, and it can be really helpful to think through it that way. So I would suggest to somebody, you know, if your ultimate love or trust is in technology, like a, a techno-optimism, then in some way, that thing has usurped God and it's become your God or an idol. Or if your ultimate fear is in technology, that techno-pessimism, or if you hear about neural implants and you say, that's it, this is the end of us, this is the death of humanity, then in some way, that fear has kind of revealed your God, or at least it's it's revealed that the fact that maybe our trust is in human capacity to protect and save ourselves. But either way, I think the first commandment, it helps us to keep technology in its proper place. And I can't help but, but think of all throughout scripture, all the calls 
that God makes to his people to recognize that, that he alone is God. Uh, I'm thinking of, of Isaiah 45, verse 5. God says, I am the Lord. There is none other besides me. There is no God. And I think that word, certainly it touches on the, the first commandment, but that word from Isaiah, that word of God, it, in some way, it, it helps us guard against technology becoming an idol or a false God, whether in hopes and love or becoming an idol in fear. Pastor Trevor Sutton is pastor of St. Luke Lutheran Church in Haslett, Michigan, co-author of the book, Redeeming Technology, A Christian Approach to Healthy Digital Habits, and a recent column for Christianity Today titled Neural Implants, Should We Become One with AI? You can read it and purchase Redeeming Technology at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Pastor Sutton, thank you. Thanks for having me. We will conclude our three-part series on forgiveness and unforgiveness, talking about forgiveness and abuse with Dr. Mark Rockenbach, co-author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month, Unforgivable, next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Charlotte, North Carolina is one of the fastest growing metros in the United States with numerous company headquarters calling the Queen City home. Folks from all around the country have come to Charlotte for its temperate climate and convenient location between the mountains and the beach. If work, family, or vacation brings you to our area, we warmly invite you to join us at All Saints Lutheran Church, the congregation confessional in doctrine and liturgical in practice. Find us online at allsaintslutheran.org. A blind sinner is carried to baptism administered by a pastor. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. That was the epiphany event where our eyes were opened to see the amazing grace of God in the very face of Jesus Christ. 